Welcome to Euros Harley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to our first episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front for 2024. For those of you listening for the first time, Euros Hartley's is a WA-based leading provider of financial services, specialising in wealth management, stockbroking, corporate finance, institutional sales and targeted research services. If you'd like to learn more, please don't hesitate to check out our website at www.euroshartleys.com. Well, our very special guest for this episode is none other than Mr. Mick Karate, one of the founders and the chairman since inception of leading global integrated engineering, construction and asset management solutions provider, Lycopodium. Stock code LYL. Mick, who is a legend of the industry, grew up in Wollongong and by chance made his way to WA. He then embarked on a journey that involved a team that built Lycopodium from scratch. Not once, but twice. In what is certainly a fascinating story. So, without further ado, it gives me a massive pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, a founder, the former chair, and current non-executive director of Lyca Podium and all-round great bloke, Mr. Mick Karate. Hi Mick, and welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's really fantastic to have you on the show and have a good chat about your life and career, and particularly, as everyone would really be looking forward to, gain some insights into the wonderfully successful Lyca Podium story. Uh, and I know we've just been chatting offline, but what a company it's grown into, of which you were one of the founders. And in its second iteration, has been going for some 30 years, uh, a company where you have until recently been chairman since inception. So, look, on behalf of us all, thanks a lot for taking the time out, Mick. Oh, it's a pleasure, Tim. Good on you. So, Mick, just, you know, you've been incredibly successful, but just before we kick off, I just one of the key parts of finding the front is to learn a bit about your background, about you as a person and things that have influenced you over your journey. And from the research I've done, it was fascinating to see that you grew up in the mighty New South Wales coastal city of Wollongong. Fantastic. <laughs> it was a good place, yeah. Enjoyed it. It was a lovely place to grow up. Lived only about uh, three blocks from the ocean. Oh, yeah. Unlike most people, yourself included, I wasn't a surfer, so I didn't really make use of it all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a lovely place. Tell us about growing up at Wollongong in terms of, you know, it's a coal mining town and, you know, you went to school there, primary school there? I did, primary school and uh, high school and university as well, at least for a total of three years out of four. Yes. It was, uh, it was a really good place to grow up. We had the beach, we had the headlands where the surfers Wollongong Lighthouses is probably a pretty famous, uh, the south side of it's a pretty famous surfing spot. Yes. A lovely spot. Yeah, we had the mountains nearby. It was, it was only about two miles from the beach to the mountains or thereabouts. So, uh, yeah, you could really enjoy it. It was quite safe. Uh, it was an unusual town because it was a very working class town. Yes. Steelworks was, uh, it wasn't where the head office was. It was where the the administrative 
uh, workings. You know, the, the day-to-day management of the steelworks happened in Wollongong. Right. Uh, so it was a single social level town, quite unusual. Did fairly well. I mean, there weren't too many people that were uh, in, in the poverty uh, zone, but strangely enough, there weren't too many people in the, uh, the higher end of the uh, income and such. So very heavy trade town. Yeah. Really, really nice place, actually. Good, good. And, and so well, what did your mum and dad do to have them in Wollongong? Mum uh, moved to Wollongong with her parents and her first husband uh, in 39, I think it was. And her dad and her husband died uh, during the war, uh, not for, for medical reasons, not for anything else, accidents and such. So she... Uh, met my dad and they were married in Wollongong and that's where they they lived. So your your sorry your mum's father died in the war. Is uh, that right? At uh, as a, a result of uh, uh, just a, an operation, he wound up with pneumonia in oh, the hospital. Mum's sad. husband wound up with meningitis from a cut from work. Right. Both died. So mum wound up with a, an eighteen-month-old child, and uh, uh, she and uh, my grandmother. Uh, had to get by. Yes. Uh, it was an interesting time for them, scary time. Yes. During the uh, bombing in Darwin and such. Yep. But, um, as a, a result of a bit of good forethought by my grandfather, the house was paid off when they uh, when he died. It was right. part of the uh, an insurance policy. So they uh, took in a border and uh, they uh, kept going and uh, did quite well. And then I came along in 49. Uh, my dad and mum married in 40. Five, and then I came along in '49, uh, and um, Dad, when well, he'd been in the Air Force, and so he um, started up a workshop uh, doing mechanical repairs and selling petrol, which I did for him on Saturday mornings later on to earn a few dollars, to earn a bit of money. Yeah, it was good, and he had that until he retired at about I think he was 75 when he retired. He just loved well. I think it was part of his life. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed the companionship. The workshop was a, an interesting place because on a Saturday morning there were a, a gaggle of old friends that used to turn up and uh, <laughs> uh, either wield a spanner for Dad or talk or talk with each other or whatever. Yeah, and you were down there helping out too and yeah. embracing the whole atmosphere. Yeah, it's a, it, was an, it was an interesting thing. I mean, I was effectively an only child, so... I guess I had more involvement with adult with adults through that, yeah, than I did with uh, with siblings and such. So my sister was seven years older than me, so we were a fair way apart. Yeah, yeah, and that, there was just the two of you. Yeah, just the two. It's yeah. interesting when you look at that, Mick. Do you think this upbringing in the workshop and and your dad in that regard had an influence on you early? Oh, it did. Yeah, very much so. Dad was um, that was an interesting guy. He uh, he was not a great businessman in terms of ever making any real profit, but he, he made a solid living. He loved doing a job well and he loved solving problems. Yes. He, was, he was good technically. He taught me a huge amount just by watching him in terms of how to work with my hands. Yes. When I went to university, it was interesting because many of the other students had basically never picked up a spanner and I'd been wheeling spanners for for years so it gives you a different view on things same with uh, even going on through engineering i mean a lot of engineers graduate without ever really having 
done anything hands-on. Yes. Some, some absolutely do, but quite a few come through without much hands-on experience. So this is really interesting in terms of your background. When did you end up actually moving from Wollongong? So that, because that engagement in the workshop with your yeah. mum and dad and, and grandma, you yeah. know, in that environment, which yeah. sounds like a fantastic upbringing. I was. When did you leave, end up leaving? At the end of university, I, uh, well, during my uh, studies, I had a cadetship with the PMG department, which in those days was telecom. So that is the Postmaster General's Department. That's right. Now, just for the listener, I had to do a bit of research around this. This was predating Telecom. And Telstra. Telstra, predating Telecom, and it was the first communications department of the government. Well, it was more than that. It was the PMG department included the post office. The post office as well. And Telstra. And Telstra, yeah. Yeah. So you worked there for for a little Uh, while. Yeah, I worked there uh, for three years nearly. Uh, after I finished and uh, I moved to Sydney during that time after uni and uh, shared houses and did all those sorts of things. But just to pause there, when you left school, did you know what you wanted to do with regards to university? Yeah, I did. I'd wanted to be, earlier on in high school, I'd wanted to be um, uh, an aeronautical engineer, but reality came home when I realised there was not much work for aeronautical engineers in Australia at the time. (laughs) So uh, electrical engineering became uh, my interest. I was interested in radio, a bit of a nerd in some ways. So I did electrical engineering and at the end of university I made a, a prophetic decision that working as an electrical engineer you're always going to be the, the uh, service provider to someone else. So I missed out entirely on the electronic evolution that we're looking at. <laughs> mixing stations and computers and phones and God knows what else. There's a whole world that I stepped away from, but that's all right. I was happy. It was yeah. good. Yeah. And I went back, to, effectively went back to mechanical engineering later on. You clearly were good at school. You must have been quite bright because to be an engineer, you do sort of have to have a few ideas. Yeah, you've you got to get into the course and there's a bit of a hurdle yeah. of getting yeah. in there. So that was level. all right. Yes. Yeah. And you enjoyed school then? Yeah, well, yeah, parts of school were good. It was interesting. I had some good friends and uh, Wollongong being such a spread out place and I, I went to uh, Christian Brothers School and so it gathered kids from all over Wollongong. So I had friends all up and down the coast. It was good. Couldn't complain about that at all. Yeah, good. So here you are, an electrical engineer steering towards mechanical engineer, but in the meantime you you started with the Postmaster General's Department and that was for about three years. That's right. And that's using your electrical engineering degree? To some degree, to be honest, uh, even there, half of what we used to worry about was building services. In fact, I wasn't in the electronic side of the uh, telecom at the time. I was working in uh, building services. Okay. At the end of uh, the three years, I decided I wanted to go off. I'd had enough of the PMG department. I wanted something different. Yeah. So I used that the... Cadetship required you to work actually for five years, and uh, but the Whitlam government came in and uh, did away with all of those constraints. Thank you, Goff, much appreciated. <laughs> so I took my savings and went backpack, went up, drove up to Darwin, and uh, was aiming to go to a mate's wedding. A guy I studied with in Java. Unfortunately, I was in Darwin at Christmas '74, so Cyclone Tracy put an end to my plans to 
island top my way up. So I had to take an evacuation flight back to Sydney and fly up to Indonesia and but uh, that all worked out really well. So you, were you in Darwin when the cyclone actually hit? Yeah, yeah. Give us a quick snapshot of that. Uh, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. Where well, were you? In a friend's house or in friend's a friend's house? Uh, he was on duty as a weather forecaster at the uh, <laughs> of all things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, it gave him a lifelong interest in cyclone <laughs> cyclone <laughs> research yeah. for obvious uh, reasons. Yeah. My beach buggy had a roll cage in it, so he'd so had it at you work. You drove to d- from Sydney to yeah. Darwin in a beach buggy. Yeah, yeah. What top down? No, no. Oh, it was, was it a had a roof. Yeah, yeah, it had a roof. It yeah. was a thing called a Myers Manx Volkswagen based thing. He had taken it to work that night, and he came home about seven o'clock and said, "Mick, this thing is going to make a mess of Darwin." He brought the buggy back because he figured that it was a, a better shelter for his wife and son and I than it, than. Than the, uh, house. than the car that was there, oh, the which was a little, tiny little car. So uh, he left it for us. Glad he did, actually. It, uh, it survived. The house didn't fall down, but nearly everyone around it did. Gosh. But we were we were fine. In the, I mean, the roof blew off and we evacuated to the beach buggy downstairs. And it was dry and reasonably dry anyway, and that uh, was fine. Tell us, Mick, I mean, a bit left field, but what was the noise like when it came through? It was pretty incredible. The thing I remember mainly was getting up next morning and stepping out of the beach buggy and looking back across the roof. It was underneath. It was one of those houses on stilts. Yeah, and the buggy was underneath. You yeah, were in was, the buggy. We'd lashed it to the two stairs front and back. So, so it couldn't fly off. And it was reasonably protected by the stair structure from flying debris. Stepped out, looked across the roof of the buggy below the roof of the house, and I could see sky. And I was standing there thinking, I can see a floor. There used to be a house there. <laughs> this this happened all around. You could look the other way. You could look straight through a house at the back. The windows at the front, big louver windows are blown out front and back out of the lounge room, so you could look straight through it. And... Uh, I worked with the army for a few days afterwards, uh, just lending a hand, and um, they were going around cleaning up to try and prevent spread of disease yes. from scattered food and whatever. Yes. So we went through a lot of the houses that had been demolished, and uh, one of the army guys said that he'd been in. It was this was just after Vietnam, and one of the guys said he'd gone into Da Nang just after it had been shelled for a week or something by the uh, Viet Cong, and he said. The devastation in Darwin was far greater than what he saw in Dunning. Is that right? Yeah. The army guys were amazed at the, uh, the level of destruction. Yeah. yeah. What was, an experience. Was, yeah. <laughs> so you ended up going back to Sydney and then yeah. flew up to Indonesia. Now, this, yeah. is a, this is a pretty pertinent point because you, I understand you ran out of money up there. Yeah, and had well, to get some work somehow and, and decided to fly to Perth. I didn't fly. I caught the, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> caught the, uh, the ship part of the ship jets that used to run in those days. Oh, is that right? Yeah, the, the cheapest way to Europe or back from Europe was by plane to Singapore and a boat to Perth. Right. And that was the cheapest way back from Singapore to Perth. So took that. And, and, why, uh, and why Perth, though? Because it was the cheapest place I could get to. <laughs> Is that right? so it was good. This, because it's quite an interesting point. It, it's almost like a sliding door moment where you've decided on Perth, 
because of a financial situation Absolutely. rather than any other reason. I just yeah. need to get some money somehow and it's the cheapest way to get to some job <laughs> or whatever was, was to go to Perth. It was Perth uh, because it was Perth, it was Australia and uh, I had 10 bucks when I arrived. So <laughs> <laughs> luckily the PMG department had discovered that they owed me 100 bucks and sent it to my mum who sent it on to me in Perth. Uh, so I could survive long enough to get a job. So, <laughs> so yeah. when you arrived in Perth, I understand you got a job, and I'm not sure how why this was the case, but mm. was it you know you got a job with the Cliffs Robe River yeah. as a mechanical engineer? Yeah. Now, did you apply for that yeah, role, yeah. and and you went through a yeah. process? Yeah, I went applied for a, a mechanical engineering job. Yes. It was a bit strange in those days. They found it hard to attract young engineers, to be honest. Yeah. I guess for guys that grew up in Perth, Perth was a bit pretty big attraction. So what happened at Cape Lambert was nearly everyone at Cape Lambert came from somewhere else, either from a plane from somewhere else, Cliffs had hired them somewhere and brought them in, or they came from other parts of Australia, or they were travellers, Yeah. pretty much like me. One of my good mates... Uh, He'd come from Germany and wound up oh, travelling up to Darwin and around, wound up, uh, I think he came to Cape Lambert from Darwin, direct, sort of uh, just driving and found a job. Another good mate had been up there working on one of the early railroad projects at Dampier and uh, was in a tent camp at the beach. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty pretty basic in some ways. By the time I got there, it was relatively opulent, air-conditioned houses and oh, is that right? uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad. That was only three years, three, four years later, but it was, and it uh, changed quite a bit. Because Cliffs Robe River was, you know, their main component, was a component of the Pilbaraan or network, wasn't it? And it was um, building the Robe River Railway? Yeah, they built the Robe River Railway and their one mine was at uh, Panawanica. Yes. And uh, it was mining what was had been the bed of the uh, Robe River in geological time. Yes. And it, it, it had been cut through over time and the that bed was the top of the mesas, the classic American, uh, the Western movie Mesa. Yeah. The top 60 feet of it, I think it was, was high-grade iron ore and the Robe River had cut through it and it meandered through these mesas. And uh, so it was a fantastic geological formation. Yes. Really interesting place. Yes. And that's where... That they'd link up to a pelletizing plant and port at Cape Lambert. Yeah. And so you were a mechanical engineer working at Cape Lambert. Is that right? Yeah, I was. I remember when a guy who's now a very good friend picked me up at the town office and drove me out to the plant and we talked a little bit. And, uh, and then I saw bits of the plant start to appear over the hills. And I thought, this is going to be really interesting. One, I'm a phony mechanical engineer. Two, I don't know, one end of a mining plant from another. There's two ways you can handle this, Mick. You can try and wing it and hide your ignorance for a while or you can own your ignorance, if you like, in current terminology and say, what the hell is this thing? (laughs) And I thought, I can't keep a straight face long enough to work the first way, so the straight ignorant approach was <laughs> was uh, the I best confess. one. <laughs> I confess, I don't know what this is about. <laughs> and, and what's the problem and what do you reckon the best fix is? And just try and implement it. And uh, it worked. It was, it was good. Had a great time. 
well, did you find it was a great learning curve? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the Cape Lambert, the pellet plant had, I think there were, the wharf conveyor was conveyor 187, I remember that number. There were a few missing in that sequence because it allowed for a few extra expansions, but there were an amazing number of conveyors in there. There, was, there were bawling drums. There was a travelling great kiln that I'd never seen before that was huge. There were 5,000 horsepower fans on the, on the burners for the, wow. to um, blow air into this thing and circulate the air. And there were all kinds of crushes and screens and stuff that I'd never heard about. So, yeah, it was... It's opened you up to another world. Oh, it was a totally different world and it was all interesting stuff, you know. It, yeah. was, it was stuff you could approach from first principles. You didn't really need a... Most of it you didn't need an engineering degree to understand. It was uh, a bit of high school physics was enough to get your mind around it. Yeah. Uh, it was only whether or not you had uh, used a spanner and could see what the problems were for the people maintaining gear, see if there's a better way to do things, replace equipment, whatever. It was uh, it was a really fascinating time. Did you, because you went with regards to this first role with Cliffs Road River, as a mechanical engineer, you had no desire really or preference to go into mining. It was just a job or it just... I'd never even thought about it, to tell you the truth. Yeah. It wasn't something that I knew I wasn't going back to telecom or yes. to PMG department. I didn't know where I was going, so this came along and uh, seemed like a pretty good idea at the time and uh, it was working out, so I hung in there and kept going with it. So then this is where it started. You then went from there to do a short period at Steel Mains, yep. which was a leading manufacturer of steel pipelines. Yeah, they did sell pipelines and they were doing... For the water industry. Yeah, they were doing pressure vessels is what we were working on, which was a something I never been involved with and uh, so I learned a bit about drafting to be honest was the main thing. Yes. Uh, I was a very good drafty there that uh, taught me how to well what a good drawing looked like and what a bad one looked like. I never got it past bad but uh, or <laughs> mediocre but that was okay. Then I understand this was quite formative because you met a, a really quite experienced engineer there Ross Menzies who yeah. had an influence on you. I was a bit later. A bit later? Yeah that was I wound up. Oh, that was with Kinhill. Yeah. So you went from steel steel main to Kinhill engineering. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Ross had been uh, chief engineer for Renison Goldfields, and right. so he worked in the Mount Lyle. Prior to that, he'd worked at Mount Isa. He knew all of the equipment that you use in a mining plant, and he'd worked with it for many years. Yes. He was retired or on the edge of retirement, if you like, when I met him. And he was my boss working on a project for, at Wagerup where Alcoa were building a new plant. Alcoa was very good in their approach in building this new plant. Instead of having a major engineer come, come in like had happened with uh, on the Worsley project, for instance, that was a major engineer, did the whole thing. Alcoa decided that they would use local engineers because they had a core of really good senior engineers that had been with Alcoa for a long time at Wagera, at Pinjara. Yes. And they used those guys to be the principal engineers for a team that they got from consultants right. to, to do the detail. Yes. And, so, and you at Kinhill, which were engineering consultants, fitted into that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, we did the mill building. 
uh, in the bins and such, and there were various other consultants on that job. But it was good. Uh, Ross taught me about the equipment and, uh, you know, really showed me the, the sensible way to do calcs yes. in a way that, I mean, you can get very, uh, people get all worried about how to, are they taking enough things into account. Ross was a very straightforward guy and he said, this is how you do it. And uh, it was really good. He taught me a huge amount and he was a really good guy really good father figure if you like yes yeah uh, great I'd, mentor yeah particularly as he he knew the mining industry backwards so he could give me explain the structure of things how things worked really within yeah. a mining company and uh the guy i worked with at uh alcoa uh, the, the the guy that we worked for at alcoa was a guy called dick coles and dick had been through the a vast learning curve of his own in his career of, uh, and he understood the aluminum industry very well, aluminum plants, and working with him was uh, really good. He subsequently moved on, and we worked on very on projects together uh, in other in other capacities later on in our, our careers. It was it was a really enjoyable time. I learned a huge amount at that time. Fantastic. You were with Kinhill, and then you went to. That lasted about three years, and then you went to Kirk Engineering. Yeah. And so that, that opportunity to work with Ross and learn was clearly, if we overlay that with what you experienced when you were at Cliffs Robe, yeah. you're now starting to gain some pretty good, solid foundation in terms of your trade. That's that's true. It's uh, That's what I – those two employment periods were – Formative. Uh, yeah, they were for, for what I – continued with the step to Kirk engineering was huge fun it was just an <laughs> enjoyable project yeah. because the Kirk brothers were three brothers ran the company and uh, they were doing work for EPTM Clough a French company that ran the pipeline barge for the Rankin offshore pipeline right and Clough who were their JV partner and Shell was intimately involved in the in the thing, as I remember as well. A number of Shell people were involved in the discussions, but that was the biggest pipeline that had ever been ploughed into the ocean floor by a long shot. It was a 42-inch pipe with concrete around the outside of it. Huge Goodness pipe. Goodness me, yes. And uh, the gear that was involved in doing this was, again, to me, totally foreign. I mean... I wound up for a while working on the, the barge itself, the pipeline barge, where initially they were stripping the pipe joining the equipment that welded the pipes together, the strings of pipe, into a very long continuous string. They took all these pieces of equipment off and shipped them back to Holland where the barge came from and set the barge up to be a floating block, if you like, where with a, a line out the back to the plough that sat on over the pipe and a series of anchors that were out the front with big winches to move, pull this block, floating block, forward, which pulled the plough and buried the pipe. <laughs> what a so, piece of machinery. Oh, yeah, this thing had a 1,600-tonne crane on the back of it. A huge thing, yeah. just an enormous thing. So this was another one of those moments where you uh, you think... Couldn't believe it. Yeah, and it was just seeing totally different world. I guess it would have been uh, 
that would have been understandable for anyone who, well, if the circumstances were different, I think I probably would have been pretty keen to follow an oil and gas career. Yes, yes. But uh, as it was, um, that was a, a short project uh, that I was involved in and uh, I started working with a guy that I'd met at Kinhill, Jamie Taylor. And Jamie had been, uh, he'd been laid off as I had from Kinhill. He was doing some work for some mates who were with a company called Grants Patch Partners, which was a very small, it wasn't a mining company, it was retreating, uh, heap leaching tailings from the various old gold mining operations. Right. And some of this tailings went three grams. It was quite high, relatively high grade. Well, these days with $3,000 gold, it was yeah. quite valuable, but it's still good in those days. But they wanted to build a portable plant and tank leach it so they could get higher recoveries. And so Jamie was designing them this portable plant, which wound up being a, a large rectangular tank divided into six separate tanks with agitators and various things that you need in the tank screens and things to be able to run a carbon and pulp plant. Yep. And um, no one had tried to make a portable plant like this before. I was going before. to say, that, was, that would have been quite innovative. Yeah, well, carbon and pulp plants were pretty innovative at the time. I mean, yeah. people were figuring out how to do things and uh, the technology was evolving, if you like. Yes. Uh, so we took it in a, an odd direction to make a portable plant because that's what the guys wanted and it was um, we had a lot of fun because once the plant was built and assembled and operating uh, we wound up there trying to make it work and <laughs> or having to make it work and and they did work uh, we learned a lot of things along the way and uh, had to change our uh, our methods a little bit but uh, but they worked and it was good and that was the start of something uh, significant. Yeah, we after a while, we uh, Jamie decided that this thing had a, a life and that uh, maybe we should work on it together. And so uh, he invited me in as a partner. And um, then eventually later on, he uh, we uh, brought in another guy. We, we needed a wider range of skills. Jamie was a civil engineer and had, had never built anything mechanical. I was an electrical engineer who was a phony me mechanical <laughs> engineer and uh, I think the only project I ever built, uh, the thing I ever designed electrical was in this period and luckily I just decommissioned it some, some years later so there's no evidence of it so that's good. <laughs> but um, we, uh, yeah, we, the three of us um, started like a podium, of, or, well it was already underway but we... Uh, kept lycopodium growing. So this, and for the listener, there are two iterations of lycopodium so that there's no confusion. This is the first one. Yeah. And this is how it originally started with your connection with Jamie Taylor yeah. and the commencement of building portable plants. Yeah, that's right. To retreat gold tailings, yeah. in essence. Yeah. How many plants did you build? Uh, did about four or five tailings retreatment plants and we did Great Victoria, Westonia, you and me, we did Mount Pleasant. We'd started it and it was in in construction when Prop bought the company. We did one for Chevron. We did one for Chevron, a small pilot plant in Chile for Chevron in those days. So it's just, it, it scaled up pretty quickly. 
it did. It was only lasted five years. Well, and, and that, you know. to that point, for the listener, the first iteration of Like a Podium ended up employing around 120 people, correct me? Yeah, that's about right. And, and was yeah. bought out by Minproc in 1987. So this was a period of time of some five years. Yeah, that's right. It was interesting because that's the first start of Like a Podium. Yeah, that was the uh, the original company. Uh, we When we sold it, it was... It was in a good situation, but Jamie had picked that the the market was overheated. Strangely enough, he, well, he right did a good ni- job. Nineteen eighty seven. He, he, yeah. What month in nineteen eighty seven? End of June nineteen eighty seven. He's uh, was, just about nailed it. Uh, it was perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he picked it, and it was it was negotiated prior to that because that was the actual legal date. And then, uh, in fact, I was in Chile commissioning the little pilot plant in. September 87 when the crash happened and I didn't know about it. I rang Jamie a week later and he told me what had happened. Figured I'd crawled out from under a rock. (laughs) (laughs) Which others have uh, commented on that as well, but still. Um, But yeah, it was uh, was good timing, that's for sure. Tell me about those days, Mick. You know, you would have come across a lot of characters in the mining industry through there. Yeah, yeah, we did. Good days? Yeah, they were very good. It was amazing. The, uh, I think the, the lounge bar at the Palace Hotel in Cal was, uh, was an amazing place. If you went in there, you'd be introduced to all kinds of movers and groovers in the gold, in the gold industry because it was pretty small at, that, at yes. that point. Oh, there were some crazy characters, that's for sure. But we met some interesting people. Um, one of the people that, we met and worked with on the first project and, and a number of other projects over the, over the years was uh, Nick Georgetta. He was yeah. with Grants Patch. Yes. A whole group of people um, that, uh, you know, are still good friends and it's, yeah. uh, it, was a, it was a good time. Special time. Yeah, yeah, it was, very much so. Just to move a little bit to the left, you, during that period of time, you met your wife, Teresa, in Perth. Yeah. You got married in 1983. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, it was <laughs> pretty fantastic. So you've landed in Perth with no money, and all of a sudden you've built a business and sold it, and you've got married. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting time, all right. So with Teresa, you've got two boys. Yeah, we have two boys. They're really in in a great spot. One of our sons uh, lives in Perth. Just had a his first son. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So you're a grandfather? Uh, yes, absolutely. He's less than six months old, so he's a great little guy. Yeah. Our other son's uh, over in, uh, he did eight years in the army and uh, he's now learning to fly helicopters. So uh, he's having a great time over in Brisbane at the moment. Oh, so, good, good. Yeah, so they're good. So back in the early days, I, I understand just from talking to you, yeah, beforehand, Teresa was a pharmacist. Yes, that's and, right. And she basically kept the financial house in order while you were out there building all these plants. She did. We got um, married the day after I returned from commissioning our first plant in, uh, <laughs> yeah. in, as like the first lycopodium plant. So <laughs> thankfully she, uh, she had an income, uh, a nice stable income, working for the Royal Perth Hospital that uh, kept us afloat for quite a while there. We had a uh, an interesting time. It was it was quite amazing because we were both very involved in our work. Teresa was as well. She has a master's in pharmacy, and she wound up lecturing in the wow, in okay. the field and tutoring. Yes. So we were both very busy at that time, 
one of our I remember we used to have almost a standing order at the uh, at a restaurant in Fremantle, an Indian restaurant in Fremantle. It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a lot of eating at home. No, no, it was very, uh, very hectic. Lots of hours, but it was quite amazing because I remember Teresa was telling me that she came into the like podium office, which was up in High Street, up top of High Street, and she met one of the engineers who was really agitated nervous and it was a friday afternoon and everyone used to gather there for, i mean drinks in those days on a friday afternoon were you couldn't do that anymore it was it was a bit of a uh, a hectic occasion <laughs> every friday was a hectic occasion i should say right and she walked in and uh, one of these one of the guys a really nice guy he was engineer he was quite nervous and so she started talking to him and uh, he confessed to her that he was preparing to propose to his wife who also worked at like well sorry subsequent wife yes uh, his girlfriend who worked at like podium as well and uh, he talked with Teresa about the ring and uh, and such and she uh, she remembers those times as being quite special because oh. uh, the whole company was a big family in those days oh, was, I could just imagine yeah it was 100 people is is a fair number past that size it's things start to get a bit too big yeah you know? but you can have a quite a close relationship with everyone in a in a company of around 100 people it works very well yeah what a t- what a period of time in your life mm, was, uh, you know yeah, that really good so if we just fast forward here to 1992 where for the listener this is where the second iteration of like a podium starts and i think from what we were talking about mick yeah, you had a pretty good period of time between the sale of the first Lycopodium to Mimproc and the second being 1992. But through that period of time, you were you were still involved in the mining sector, and you but you you'd sort of kept touch with a number of people that were in your f- sphere of work. Yeah, we we the owners of Lyco one set up a small company to take some interest in mining projects by getting involved at the early stages and using our knowledge of project development path yes. process to uh, gain some equity in the projects. By 92, we had a small team of about eight or ten people working on some studies and projects. And, however, we had done well in picking the crash in 87 but we kind of didn't think it was going to last five years until things picked up again yes and so uh, we had a bit of a hard decision to make around uh, 92 it was things weren't uh, evolving at uh, the rate that we needed so the other two guys had interests in other areas so they decided that they wanted to go that way and i thought that the original business plan, if you like, of Lycopodium was something that I wanted to follow with. And so the core of, let's say, a more experienced team than we had started out with in Lyco 1 yes. was already in place. We had someone who had the um, business accounting legal such skills. We had someone, uh, Laurie Marshall. We had Rod Leonard who uh, was um, a senior metallurgist uh, and very skilled, and we'd work with him on pro- on various projects. 
Bruno Ruggiero was a design guy who had joined the first local podium as a graduate. I, I had hired <laughs> him and I recognised that he was just what we needed in for a, a, for a start-up of a, another local podium. And we were, however, we were, we were missing a, uh, a project guy. Yes. But by good timing and luck, uh, another guy that had worked for Lyco One, Bob Osmetti, was kind of between projects anyway. And uh, we asked him if he'd like to join and he, he came on board. So, so this is really formative. And so we've got Bruno Ruggiero, yeah, Rod Leonard, yeah. Laurie Marshall, yeah. Bob Osmetti, yeah. and yourself. That's right. And they're the five... Forming partners That's right. of like a podium two. That's right. The question that everyone's got is, how did you manage to get like a podium as the name? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a bit it, of a uh, an interesting one, Jamie. I, I had said uh, when we were negotiating the sale of Lyco One that uh, it was a shame to lose the the name, and Jamie had said, "Don't worry about it." He said they'll find something that they want to do with the entity and uh, they'll change the name because they won't want to use like a podium. And sure enough, that's what they did. That's right. what Winproc did. So we just re-registered it and we were off again. <laughs> and because the, the uh, mining industry had been pretty much uh, bumping along the floor, most people didn't realise that uh, we hadn't been around because <laughs> they'd had no, no need for us or any other engineer. Yeah, yeah. So when we went back looking for... Uh, to uh, talk to clients, they said, uh, oh, yeah, what were you doing in the meantime? Oh, that's interesting. Look, this is what we want to do. <laughs> so <laughs> it was all good. Business as usual. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nothing uh, had changed. And then, so this this is just the start and this is where it, the group joined together and I just will highlight that for the listener, like a podium from this point grew and grew from 1992, okay, and we, we can go over it, but you listed on the ASX in November 2004, yep. raising $6 million at a dollar a share. You were the first chairman yes. of the board yeah. and, and you've only you've been chair of like a podium until recently where you stepped down at the 2023 that's right. AGM. Yes, that's correct. It's a long time, Mick. Uh, it's a long time, you know. And, and that during that period after some, what are we talking here, 30 years. Yep from 1992 and, and some 20 years since the listing. But the current share price is now around $12 a share. It has a market capitalization of around $480 million. You're directly employing some 1,200 people and with it contractors included, manage some 2,500 people. And you work on projects all over the world. And that's not even mentioning the dividends that the company has provided over time. And... I think for everyone listening, that's what they classify as a success story. <laughs> so, Mick, congratulations. Now, what we all want to know is how did you do it? You know, like what what were the founding philosophies and, and, and the strategies that you, a group of five, and we'll call it yeah. famous five, whatever you, <laughs> to have such a successful business over that longer period of time. And, and it'd be good to see what those pivotal points were. There were a, a couple of principles that we started with and one of them was that the project had to come first. That was, that was critical. If, you, if you're going to build a credibility with clients, you have to have success on their projects and 
we were working on a, on what is called an EPCM basis, where we managed the project, designed and managed and built the project on behalf of the client. Didn't take a, a margin on the capital cost of the project, uh, so we were doing it for fees, for professional fees. So we were acting like your lawyer or your architect, yes, if you like, yes. or your accountant. Yes. There's, there's no percentage fee on it. So we, we needed their trust and we needed to be able to prove that we could, if we said it was going to cost a certain amount, then it had to cost right. that amount. Was that uh, fee structure or cost structure quite innovative at the time? No, no, it was... So co- it, just it, a, fee, a fee for service? No, that was probably the more common way it worked, had worked up until, let's say up until 1980 when Minproc first started and Minproc very quickly went from they introduced the concept of doing things lump sum and that gets to be that's a different approach you you're very much on the other side of the table our aim was to sit on the owner side of the table with the owner as part of the owner thinking like an owner owner. yeah yeah we're part of effectively the owner's project development department yes if you want to call it that and so we had to be able to demonstrate that we were working on their – we put their interests first. We had to separate our – what we were paid from the – and be able to uh, act entirely on behalf of the owner. And that's what we did. That's how we, how we did it. And it, it was quite successful. People understood us. They knew what, how we worked. Um, it's still our primary way of working now – currently in this market. Um, We have done some lump sum work. We do occasionally do lump sum work for projects, for clients. Uh, Sometimes they want it or need that sort of thing, part of their financing risk. I think to some degree, some of the financiers will, certainly in the African projects, they've been willing to finance because they know that if we're building it, We've built so many projects in Africa and come in on time and budget and, yes. and uh, it's performed that I don't think they have a problem with financing a project on an EPCM basis. Yes. And that, that's worked very much in our interest as well. It also it allows the owner a lot of flexibility. I mean, if you're building a project that goes two and a half years from beginning to end, like, for instance, during COVID, yes. we were doing projects in... Africa during COVID where one of our teams stayed on site on one of the sites for six months straight. I know in back in the 70s people did this but it doesn't happen today so yes. that, that was a great thing that they did but after that the client had the problem that now do I keep going? What do I do? I can't move people. You've got limitations on the way contractors can move, goods moving and so on. And that project, I think it took about uh, took a little bit longer, but it came in on budget, I believe. And they didn't have a major negotiation with a major contractor because of a force majeure condition. Yes, we worked through it. Yes, they understood the risk. They understood what our plans meant in terms of time and cost, and um, they could plan around it. So. In comparison, we did a lump sum project in Australia uh, during COVID and the client in that case 
decided that uh, COVID wasn't a force majeure condition. So that took quite a bit of negotiation to not wind up with a major loss. Yes, yes. Or what I think most people would say was a force majeure condition. Yes, yes. So the second principle was something that was pretty much built in our DNA from LICO 1, but we'd never put words to it. And I don't think anyone did until Rod put a, a phrase to it when we started up LICO 2, which was that we didn't want to be the biggest, we wanted to be the best. And it, this sort of flows on from the first principle, but it has a different effect. If you want to be the best, you have to have a method to make it happen. And we did that at multiple levels. We did it at, right from the top. You can't introduce a cultural quality from the bottom up. It has to be from the top down. That was pretty easy when there were just five founders because within our, each of our own disciplines, we could aim for being the best in our discipline. It's a little bit more difficult to do that when you're a bigger company with 1,200 people. So in this case, Peter DeLeo is the MD. Like a, uh, Peter's been with us since 92, and he joined us as a project engineer. He worked in uh, projects in Africa and Australia, he understands his own field, project management, really well. He respects the other disciplines because a project manager's function is to coordinate all of these different disciplines to produce a project. And he understands what happens when you grow too quickly. When you focus on growth rather than on quality, you very quickly find your limits. And those limits aren't personal limits if of your individuals. It's something about structure. You have to practice being good at what you do and working together to produce a high quality product. And you can't do that if you double the size of your company overnight. Peter understands that and so it's it's built in across the whole company. We also have a technical director, Bruno Ruggiero, who I mentioned previously, but he's been with us since the very beginning. Uh, he's one of the founders and he's been through a lot of cycles of the industry. He understands the problem of maintaining quality during times of growth, of maintaining it even at a stable time. And he has qualifications in uh, not only is he's, he's a real mechanical engineer, and he has qualifications in civil engineering and in metallurgy as well. So he's eminently qualified to oversee that area and see that uh, we maintain that quality. And I'd like to also point out another, it's not a principle, it relates to the above principles. We designed our own short-term and long-term incentive scheme. And the principle in that is that we don't reward risk. That is, we don't target growth. We want people to focus on the quality and up to a point growth is, is, is good. But we don't want really high rates of growth. Many of these systems, the incentive is open-ended. The better you do in a given year, the more you make. Ours is not. What we want is consistent and regular profitable years and we've designed the system around that and we cap the uh, the incentive scheme so that it's not an open-ended system 
there's no incentive for a senior manager to push us to take on a project that might make us a lot of money, might also bring in a lot of risk. And so uh, that's something that is, it relates to the, what I was just talking about. We don't want to be the biggest, we want to be the best. Interesting. Have you found that the way that you've built the business, and you think about that philosophy being an extension of the owner, in building the business, has word of mouth been the strongest part of your business development? I believe so. Um, it's even to be on, to get on the bid list is is a can be a you've got to work to do that commonly. Yeah. So, for many projects that we are really interested in. That's not an not an issue. We can get on the bid list. That takes a lot of away a lot of your foot foot slogging trying to to negotiate with people to to be considered seriously. When you've been referred by yeah a respected colleague, word of mouth. Yeah, you know people uh, know what happens in the industry. You don't. They don't even have to ring up other countries companies. They know what what happened. They see the results. So. Well, it, it's clearly worked, Mick. I, I was just looking through your, your AGM presentation and the clients just go on at Fortuna, Sandfire, Perseus, Liontown, Barrick, Newmont, Goldfields. I'm not going to list them all. Rio Tinto, Caravel, Sentiment, Paladin, Lepidico, Troilus, Anglo-American, First Quantum. Yeah. The list goes on. Endeavour Mining and, as I say... It's not even really scratching the surface, but no, there's a, a vast quantity there. There's a vast quantity, yeah. but it just that building of the business over the thirty years that you've been involved has largely been through referral, doing a good job, getting it done, and then that word of mouth. That was the that was the approach. If you do a good job, word will carry on. You'll be welcome to look at the next one. Many of the Endeavour projects have been negotiated and there's been a series of those, a whole series of projects. That there's one in here from, I, I was looking through the shareholder report from 2008 and at that point we were just commissioning the Ahafo project in Ghana. Right. After that we did the Achim project in Ghana for, for Newmont. That was, I think that was the Ahafo project, I believe, it was definitely... Newmont's first project in Africa. I think it was their first project out of North South America. But the company, Lyco, is now working on the Ahafo North project. I was a study manager on the Ahafo North project prior to when Lyco was floated. Right. Uh, and back in, well, that was 2004, must have been 2000. It was first owned by Normandy. Normandy. Newmont bought Normandy, didn't quite know what they were going to do with this project and it eventually morphed from the Ahafo North to the Ahafo South, which was the one that we, we built first. Yes. And they're now working on the Ahafo North project. So the progression that you get through... And the relationship. Yeah, the relationships through one of these projects, if you do it right and if you the respect remains in place, yes. then it's a company builder. Oh, thanks for sharing, Mick. This is so interesting. And this then flows onto the culture you've been able to maintain within 
like a podium over that period of time. I, I see there's an affectionate term, lycopod. Yes. <laughs> uh, that wasn't something that uh, the board or the management dreamed up. It was uh, a term that just evolved. It tended to be from people who were on commissioning on site or constructing on site. Right. Because they depend on each other. They They need people who can do multiple jobs. They need people who don't mind picking up a spanner and getting their hands dirty. Yeah. Well, at least on the African projects. You can't do that here, of course. And so they developed this term of lycopod. There's another term that's quite hilarious that uh, I think is is really funny that I heard after I heard of a lycopod. They say that (laughs) someone bleeds green. (laughs) 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 Which, you know, lycopodium's colours are green and yellow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for the listening... You know, Mick's just lit up here. I, I can just tell you love your company so much. It's so good to chat about it. But tell me, with the swings and roundabouts, you know, you've you built this word of mouth, you've built this great business, it's strong, you're delivering on time, you're delivering on budget, you've got a strong staff, the five of you are still coordinating it, and you can tell that's been in place for such a – and you're in a rhythm. It's almost like the team is working in absolute perfection. Tell me about the swings and the roundabouts, the tough times. Well, they're the, they're the real challenge. The thing that we learned from LICO 1, that I learned from LICO 1, is that you always have to be prepared for a downturn yeah. because that's just the nature of the industry. It happens. I thought it was headed for being a bit longer this time. Mind you, it's been going very well for a long time, so we can't complain, but the recent change in the metal price in the Prices have been uh, a bit of a surprise, but uh, I suspect they won't won't change won't uh, apply for long. Or at least they'll stabilise. But you have to be prepared for those because they just happen. Yeah, there's no way you can change that. So we've always tried to be in a position where we protect the core. We keep our core people on staff, and we have uh, we try to balance up with contract people that are hired for the period of a project. Yes. And uh, that way we can continue through the bad times while protecting the people that uh, that are the core of the company. Yes. And that's success, been successful over the whole period. It has. Uh, it's a very hard thing to manage that, that downsizing. You never come out of it the hard ones like 2014-15. we didn't see it. We went from... Record profit to record profit to record profit over that period of eight nine, yeah, uh, the GFC. But fourteen fifteen was different. The mining industry was definitely definitely came down. Yes, Rod, who was the MD at the time, flagged that at our AGM and was probably the first person and certainly the first person in Perth to to do that. We knew it was coming. You could see it. So you have to plan around it. Yeah, and having been around as long as we have, we do see probably more gut feel in particular numbers or, uh, you know, hard... Hard data. Hard data, yeah. yeah. But certainly it's important that you you are aware that it's going to happen and you have a plan. Yeah. It's interesting when we talk about that and it's good that you touched on it because I was reading through the shareholder, the 2023 shareholder report from and the chairman's report that you wrote and I just a, a, a quote out of there, we have always been, and this is this is Mick's mm. chairman's report for the listener. 
We've always been sceptical of long-range forecasts in the minerals and metal resources sector due to the inherent cyclic nature of the metals markets. However, the CO2 abatement and renewable energy targets being set by industrialised countries for 2050 are providing an underlying demand for battery minerals and metals that is greater than anything we have previously seen in any commodity. We do not claim credentials in economic or geopolitical forecasting, but based on what we are seeing in the industry, we consider that there is reason to believe that high demand will remain and that this cycle will be materially longer than previous cycles. I thought that was really interesting because it's a talking point for everyone at the moment. The electrical vehicle, the CO2 or decarbonisation, the price of lithium, for example, and its current cyclical nature and other battery metals. Like a podium's in one of the fortunate positions where you can almost, you can forward look a little bit given works that's in place. Your comment here in the report really does highlight that this is a longer term thing. Hey, is that what you're still seeing it now? I mean, this was a little while ago. My view is probably not as, uh, it's probably more based on what I read in various magazines and yeah. uh, and such than it is from looking at what like what the guys are seeing in the field. Yes, talking to clients and whatever. Because when you're doing that, you're focused on the next two three years, and you're focused on a project. Once the project's on, then that's fixed work. Yeah, it's a different view to try and understand where things are moving in this regard. Yes, I still think to myself, and it's purely a personal opinion here, that we've never seen. Well, sorry. I was surprised that the iron ore price has stayed up where it has. You don't have to be intimately involved to realise that the uh, current prices, it's still very profitable to mine iron ore. Yes. The prices that lithium got to were a bit over the top and it was pretty obvious to anyone. You've only got to look at the profits that the miners were making to know that that was a, getting to be a not a commodity type price. It wasn't even a... It was much better than a good commodity price. It was an exceptional price. Yes. And exceptional prices don't usually last that long. $200 iron ore was, didn't last too long either. Yes. So it's going to be interesting. It's, it's just, uh, to me, it's just a normal process of it's something new. The price took off and went crazy. It's come back. It will jostle around and eventually a bit of volatility yeah, yeah and and it'll stabilize uh, i noticed that one of the chinese companies had uh, given was it pilbara i think they gave they have a long-term contract yes and that sort of implies that there's there's a fair bit of confidence amongst those that are buying the metal that uh, the demand will be there uh, it was a long-term arrangement over multiple years it's not something that I follow in any detail, but I just can't see that with the move into electric cars and the need for batteries in even uh, baseload power for peaking, yes, uh, you know, moderation. I can't see that the price is is not going to stay at a at a good level for the miners. It's uh, it's an increasing market. That's the thing that it it hasn't reached its absolute peak yet by any means. It's yeah. a long way short of it. So uh, I think it has to stay there. Well, thanks, for, thanks for that, Mick. So how did you feel when you got to the point where you thought it was time to step down as chairman after all these years? 
That's good. I was lucky in that we have a, a really good stable management team. I should comment two of the founders are retired already. Um, right. Uh, so there's only Rod Leonard, myself and Bruno that are still involved. Yes. And Bruno is an executive. Rod uh, had was uh, retired. He was a director, but he wasn't uh, an executive. But I was in the situation where the company's in a good spot. The management is in, is really good. You couldn't ask for a better structure there. They're working quite well to put succession plans in place for the senior management as well. And uh, I thought it was uh, a good uh, time to step down because I wanted to, not because of any need, but I was lucky to have Rod, who's imminently qualified to, to do the job and will do it a lot better than I have. <laughs> and and we're totally, we've been totally aligned on uh, the major issues, the major philosophies from from day one yes so there's not as though there's a it represents any change in in the base yes uh, philosophies i'd refer back to that chairman's report and i i i I must quote this because i thought it was just fantastic this is you again i i believe that as a result of long-term strategies and good management the company has an excellent reputation for delivering projects in the areas we service is not committed to Sunset Industries, is large enough to be able to undertake a wide range of projects in size and technologies in industries that have a bright future, is not so large that we need to win every job that we tender, remains flexible enough to redirect our focus when opportunities present, and is involved in research projects that will allow us to identify new technologies where our skills can be applied as they evolve. Not a bad position. It's. I think it's a pretty good position. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> once more. Thanks very much. Look, Mick, it, it's been a great chat. I just generally life outside of uh, like a podium. I'm sure like a podium has taken up a lot of your time and and your headspace over a long period. But I've got the feeling that other passions do also exist such as Targa rallying, <laughs> Targa <laughs> r- car racing, which sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, been a bit of a, an interest of mine for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm not the greatest driver in the world and I don't try and break records. Uh, I've broken enough cars to uh, realise <laughs> to uh, bring that home quite, quite strongly. But it's a lot of fun. Unfortunately, the Targa events are not quite so... Um, they've had a problem with a couple of deaths in Tasmania, which was very unfortunate. Right. So uh, these days I've backed off and are tending to go to an old guy's uh, old guys track events, which tend to be um, things like the Challenge Bathurst and the Phillip Island uh, Classics okay. and such, and a bit of uh, local track stuff, uh, just club days and such. Yep. So it's good fun. And tell me... Teresa's clearly got her uh, her mind around the idea that you love these car races. Yeah, well, it, that's always uh, it's a good thing she's not here because I'd uh, she'd tell you uh, the the <laughs> bad the downside to it. But she uh, yeah, she's quite uh, accepting of it. But I don't uh, 
I don't try for uh, to uh, win sheep stations yeah, uh, no. on a racetrack, so it's not too bad. <laughs> but she's really good at uh, supporting me with it, so it's good. Fantastic. You do a bit of travel these days as well? Yeah, we do. We have a canal boat uh, in France. Oh, okay. So we spend a bit of time each year over there yeah. cruising around, which is <laughs> rather an interesting thing. Travelling at six kilometres an hour is a different way to see <laughs> see the world. It's not the same as a Targa rally anyway. No, nah, a long way different, yeah. <laughs> Mick, I've got one more for you. Tell me, with all this experience and, and having built like a podium to what it's become, if you were 18 again, knowing what you know now, what would are some tips you'd give to your 18-year-old self or any other 18-year-old when you're growing up and, and just looking for that start in life? It's interesting. I, the things that worked for me, I, I guess you can only work on what worked for you. The things that worked for me was to... Get your studies out of the way. This is not what people do these days, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what people do, but people seem to get an amazing depth of qualifications in a variety of, of areas yes. before they ever work in those areas. And I found that a lot of my learning came when I was actually working. Yes. And at least when you've worked in a field... You might say, I don't want to work in this field. I want to divert into some other field. So there's not much point in having excessive depth in a field that you eventually learn isn't for you. Yes. In my own case, doing a, a, a single degree first and then working, and it was a great thing because then I could, I went travelling, I did all sorts of things that I would not have been able to do or I probably wouldn't have done if I'd been 30 when I went doing it instead yes. of being... 23 it just gives you if you're 23 with your basic qualification behind you well the world's your oyster you can go anywhere and do lots of things yeah and uh yeah i found that to be a a worthwhile thing that's a little bit different to what people commonly do i think it's i often wonder about it but uh the other thing i think is that you get these uh, you identified these turning points these things that affects, have a major effect on your future, sometimes just taking the, the path that uh, looks the most fun with an eye towards where it might lead, like taking a job in the mining industry in WA when I didn't know a thing about mining, is if, if, if it feels right, uh, we'll do it and see whether it works. You can always move on. Good on you. Dude, that's just fantastic and so applicable to, to anyone, really. I still look at it, Mick. You caught a boat to Perth because it was the closest city you could. <laughs> you took a <laughs> yeah, job on the well, mines because you, it was a job you could get. It felt right at the time. It felt right at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, amazing some of those opportunities that just turn up and – it's, uh, it's worth giving it a go. <laughs> often, uh, with the young people that like a podium, they often come and almost apologise because they've, they've quit and they're going to another job. And uh, I say to them, don't apologise. It's a good thing. Uh, come back and join us later on when, you, when you've picked up some more skills. But it's a great thing. I, I think it's a really, really good thing to do. Oh, wonderful. Just wonderful. Well, Mick, it's been a good chat and, uh, and I really have 
enjoyed it and and I really appreciate you taking the time out and sharing with us and what you've been able to put across is is an insight into such an, a remarkable business over over such a, an extended period and when you look at it and and you've you've covered off on it pretty well at the end but your story is one of following your passion and I would say part of that's having a fair element of creativity, fair element of hard work, taking a bit of risk, but definitely perseverance. Yeah, they're all uh, they're all important in getting anywhere, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to say, look, thanks again. And on behalf of Euros Hartleys, Finding the Front, we really do feel it's a real privilege to have you here. And, and thanks a lot for taking the time out. And, and we do wish you all the very best going forward. Thanks, Tim. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure talking about it. It's uh, made me uh, fire up a few memories that uh, I probably hadn't thought about for a while. So that's good. Thank you very much. Good on you, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.